History, Rabbi Bleiweiss, lecture number 116. We are sort of in the middle of something. We're talking about the um, original status quo agreement uh, issues that were negotiated between the consensus Zionist Yishuv. Uh, I should say the parties involved. It was the mainstream uh, uh, Ben-Gurion and the, the, the Yishuv who negotiated between them and the Aguda, which is the, what we would consider ultra-Orthodox today, the Haredi, those are an active working background, the Haredi, the Haredi world, and the Mizrahi. Uh, you know, because the Mizrahi, with all the problems that we're going to see, many problems that, that are going to come about with the Mizrahi, but um, they were identified with the Torah, and they, it was in their interest, certainly, if they were going to return to the land, many of them had the ideology we would associate as sometimes called messianic today, but they were returning to Eretz Yishel to keep the Torah and the mitzvahs, and they had a, therefore a major ideological issue to make sure that the institutions of the state were kosher and Shomer Shabbos and all the other things that we talked about. The states, um, I'm sorry you missed it, but we um, all survived the Shoah and now established a new Jewish state while you were gone. So now we're, now we're talking about the final, the, the, the status quo agreements on religious issues that were negotiated before the state and were promised to the various secular parties by the issue in order to get their support as they got it in order to present their support as a unified front to the British Empire and to the United Nations. Um, another factor was, logically, how, how is schooling going to work? There are multiple ideologies in this small land, in this, in this, in this uh, population, and they are not in any way uh, compatible one with the other. So. I'm summarizing and giving you the bottom line. It's obviously it was much more complicated and involved in this until they hashed out, they worked out an agreement. But effectively, what was it was arranged and established, and more or less exists till today with some uh, fine tuning, is a separate school system for three different sectors: one for secular, one for dati, and one for Haredi. Again, the word Haredi is an anachronism; it was not used at those times. There, then, you would have still called it maybe Yeshuva Yeshan. Um, but those were the three sectors. The um, hey, for radio art, like for radio art, that just means religious, right? It does. But as far as blanket labels go, it's not the link. When you say dati in people's minds today, it's a, this that means dati lumi, right? Even though technically you're right, religious is religious, whatever that means. I, I, I loved it when I was a naive Balshuva off the boat, fresh off the boat, and I just thought, well, when you're Jewish and religious, it meant you had a complete mastery of all the Benenam Lechavero laws of ethics, and you were all like unified, Yishachat Belebachat, all these beautiful, naive ideas about how it all worked, and then you become quickly, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> you're, you're trained in, in, in terms of the complications of what it is to be uh, part of Klai Yisrael nowadays. We're all over the place. Um, anyway, there's the systems are called, there's the Mamlachti. Mamlacha is a state or the nation or the kingdom. That's the Mamlachti. That's the general secular system that most of the, most of the country subscribes to. Then you have Mamlachti Dati, which is still a state system. They get state funds and they, uh, and they also have a religious twist and addition to their, to their curriculum. Um, and then you have in the, um, the Haredi system, this system was called, it was actually founded as a system as such, took some time in 1953 by the, I mean, these are all names of organizations, I don't know how much you care about the names, but the name was the Moetzes Gedolei Hatayra of the Agudas Yisrael, meaning the main rabbis and the big rabbis who were, who were leading this, the Moetzes Gedolei Hatayra, the Council of the Great 
men of the Torah of the generation, and indeed they were, many of them, uh, of the Agudas Yisrael, which was the official um, body of yeshivish, Hasidish, Lidfish, Sephardi, Ashkenazi, everything was bound together once upon a time. They founded a system that was called and remains the Chinuch Atzma'i, literally the independent education having nothing to do with the states, with, with, with the state. Um, it was initially led by Rav Salman Surutskin. His descendants would go on to found place, a place called Telstone, uh, very involved in, the, in, in, in Telstone. Do you know who I, uh, Rabbi Shulman, who I give a ride back to often in the evening, Ravavi, who teaches downstairs in some of the programs. So he, he's a great grandson of Rav Salman Surutskin. Um, the Rutskins, uh, there's this whole community and you know, whole neighborhood in Jerusalem called Surutskin. Uh, they're, they're associated with Tel Yeshiva. Indeed, Rav Zalman Surutskin, he's called the Lutzker Rebbe. He was the son-in-law of Rav Eliezer Gordon in Tel's. Uh, most of the streets in Tel's, in Telstone are named for the various Gedolim of Tel's. Anyway, um, today, practically, in the Chinuch Atzma'i, there are about 80,000 students enrolled in the Chinuch system, we're talking about younger kids, that means, what, is, what does that include? That's the Beis Yaakov system, Beis Yaakov for the girls. It was founded, as we described by Sarah Schneer, it was brought overseas, Beis Yaakov is in America, it's in England, it's, it's in any place where there are religious people nowadays, uh, and, and of course in Eretz Israel, and then adapted for the needs of the time and the place. Um, you, had, you, had, you had different systems, Cheder, in America, a lot of the time, cheder is a term that's used to describe even a high school, but in Israel, cheder usually means elementary school through eighth grade. Uh, Talmud Torah is an alternate to cheder. There are nuances and differences, and then there's yeshiva katana, which is the um, equivalent um, of high school. Um, when they graduate yeshiva katana, usually they're, about, they're, they're um, 16 or 17 years old, meaning a year before, they'd be like the equivalent of high, high school juniors in most places in the world, and then they graduate, they go to Yeshiva Gedola, okay? Um, only Beis Yaakov receives significant state funding because girls don't have to learn Torah. So they don't, there's a way of uh, meeting the state demands for the curriculum and receiving full state funding and not really compromising on the education of, of, uh, of, the, of the girls. For the boys, that's simply not the case. They, the, the demands of Talmud Torah are such that for the same reason that, if you remember the story, the Nitziv of Volozhin closed the doors to Volozhin for the final time in 1892, at, at least Volozhin as it was. A new version opened up, but it was never the same. Um, so, so the same reason they wouldn't accept full state funding. They get some state funding. Part of the issue that's come out, I, I'm going to update this too when we get to the modern day, and I'm going to talk about the situation of Torah education in the world as we have it today. I have something I um, researched extensively, and it's not something I found at any source. I want to, you know, if I'm doing a history class of Torah, I, I do an assessment, uh, we'll get to it in a couple weeks, an assessment of what's Torah like today. And what are the kinds of yeshivas, and what's, what, are the, what are the different uh, behind-the-scenes stereotypes of the different groups and yeshivas, and is there an Ivy League yeshiva? And the answer is most, most definitely, you know, as far as I, you know, Ivy League stereotypes go, there are, there are those perceptions that they could, We'll talk about how it all works. A little complicated, not quite the equivalent to what we call the Ivy Leagues, but there definitely is a status factor. In any case, um, the, uh, you know, for the boys, 
secular studies is unacceptable. Um, they do in elementary school, in the Cheder system, have some basic elementary, uh, excuse me, secular education, but it's all done in a, with a religious, um, in, a, in a religious package. So they learn science, but science is called Teva, Hebrew. And it's taught as an adjunct of Imuna, meaning when you deepen your knowledge of the natural wonders of the creation of the world, what they call science, which they denude it, where they, where they, they take out the, the, the spiritual aspect of science, then indeed it's a bunch of dry technical uh, uh, things you're studying. But in, in, as it's rendered in, in, my, in my kids' uh, school system, so they, they learn about, uh, they, 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 de they deepen their understanding of the world and thereby get closer to the, the creator. When they're orange, they don't learn. When they graduate from Cheder, they go on to Yishibikitana. Yishibikitana no longer includes secular content. That's accurate. In, the, in the, what's today called the Haredi world, that's, that's correct. Yes, wouldn't you want your kids to, like you especially coming from like a background where you learn stuff so that you're able to make a more educated decision, wouldn't you want them to learn like some secular? So the question is often asked to me, and, and the answer is it's complicated in the world as it is today. The world that we're living in is extremely... Um, Polarized, yeah. and um, I understand that at the end of the day, what matters most is Torah, and so we very with certain self consciousness and self awareness, we 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 chose this system. We moved to a Har the Haredi's uh, community, and we, we we chose this system for our kids, understanding that this was the most effective system of transmitting, but not perfect, not perfect, not perfectly effective either. either. Kids go off the derech everywhere in the world for different reasons, and so you just try your best. To make your decisions, L'shem Shemaim, Kaddish Baruch runs the world, and we just have to do our best. And it's always a trade-off. I, I remember in the, the Mamlachti Dati schools, of course, do get state funding, and they do have significantly secular courses. I remember when we lived in a Mamlachti Dati school, we were friendly with a family who was very stark, very sincere. Their kids were not. The parents were. And one of the comments of the mother was, you're not going to see any Gedoli Torah coming out of this school system. And that's, that's their trade-off. And yet they get a lot of secular stuff, and they have jobs that, you know, they, they get a, a more, more prospects for Parnassah, no question, and they have broader exposure, and it's a trade-off. What, you, you know, what do you want in this world? Does the Cater make more money from the state? Because they actually they get They do get more. That's a good, I don't know exactly how the funds are allocated, but, but there is more because they, there is, you know, they do have Cheshbon, which is math. Because there are some, there is at least some, some, you know, limited kind of a secular studies that exist. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, that was the system, and again, it's one that's constantly being reevaluated in the in the previous government. One of the uh, cause celebres of this of this party called the Eshatid, um, uh, um, Lapid, Yair Lapid, was to dismantle this. And the way to do it was very, very clever. Uh, you know, he, knows, he, knows, he knew how to go about doing things. He, he, they, they were going to take whatever funding that these schools have, which was quite limited but still important, and, and say no funding unless you do X, Y, and Z. And that was something that the, uh, clearly there's no room for compromise in terms of how we educate the future. That's what the Torah world stands on is the future. We're, we're all about transmitting Torah to the next generation. We're not going to compromise that even if that requires starvation. That's one of the things we have to have be tough on. Um, and whatever's going to be, I mean, I don't place great trust in the political processes one way or the other, but at least what appears to be the upcoming government that's in formation now, it seems to be that they're going to do their best to undo the kind of damage that was done by the previous government, and I wish you luck. Like, Yerlipid is 
very anti-religious, but you said he lost like 10 seats. They did. Well, they went from, I think the number is 19 to 12. Okay, they went down to 12. They lost a lot of seats. Uh, seats and they're probably again all it all remains to be seen. They're probably not going to. They're probably going to be sitting in the opposition, which means they're powerless. Even though they, they like to uh, say, "Oh no, the opposition, we can still accomplish things practically." They don't get much done. They're usually powerless there. And um, okay, so this uh, listen. I don't think that the Haredi parties, if they get in powers, it seems like that's going to what's going to be what happens. I don't. I, I don't think that this is going to be where Mashiach. Mashiach doesn't hinge on this either. It hinges much more on our ability to fix our midos and to make tshuva. But okay. Um, the army. What's going to do with the army? So there is an army. Insofar as the government, you know, as, as, as far as uh, there are wars and enemies of the Jews who are designing or planning the, the, the downfall of the state, there's a need for the army. Um, one, uh, without getting into too, too deep, this could be our whole shear right now. About uh, We'll get to it and we'll, we'll, we'll be able to flesh this out somewhat. But... Is there a need for an army? Well, under the present circumstances, it seems yes. Part of the Torah world's argument is that if everybody, you know, they, they say, well, if everybody was learning Torah, what would you do? How would you defend yourself? To which we would say, not flippantly, if everybody was learning Torah, we'd be much closer to Mashiach and our enemies would not be attacking to the same degree. I mean, it's the Torah that tells us. The Torah. You don't have to go to, you don't have to, go to any obscure Medrash. It's, I mean, Medrash is also Torah Shabbat. But I'm saying, but you can see before Sukim, this week's Parsha, no less. Right, that tells us that if you keep my mitzvahs, it'll go really well for you. And if not, look at the end of Parsha Zacharimos, this Parsha. What is the very pungent metaphor that the Pasuk uses to describe what happens in the land if you come to the land and um, you don't keep my mitzvahs? What will the land do? The land, Rashi tells us, is likened to a very delicate person with a, with, a, with, a, with a sensitive digestive tract. The land will regurgitate you, will vomit you out, the, the Torah says. So, so if, if that's the case, you know, clearly the fact that we have woes, we have tsuris nowadays from our enemies is connected on some level to the um, gross neglect in Torah and mitzvot. Anyway, Sahal became a reality. It was, it was re- the Haganah that we talked about before was now renamed the, the um, Tzahal, the Tzavah, Haganah um, Israel. Thank you very much. Uh, wow, you know that? Yes. Wow, I'm telling I'm, I'm on you. I'm quoting Rabbi Pitton tells me that, my goodness, that was worth it for just for that. Okay. Um, their initial goal was to conscript all young men and women of army age. Uh, that's certainly the secular socialist Zionist ethos. Everybody should do everything in fair. There would be a monumental struggle. We'll get to, we'll, I'll be telling anecdotes about this struggle. Uh, it'll involve major protests in, around the world um, from religious groups. Uh, I know um, we're, we, we were connected to one of the tzaddikim who was involved in the American protest who just passed away a couple of years ago, Rav Shach Nazon. Uh, who, um, who had a major stake in, in trying to organize these protests. Uh, in the end, and this was in, order, in, terms, in terms of getting exemptions for the young women and the young men from army service, the government ultimately begrudgingly allowed the women to apply for exceptions, either complete, that would be for the Haredi women, or through the, for the Mizrahi, for the Dati Leumi, uh, what's called Sherut Leumi if they would choose, would be national service, which would be, uh, we would see it maybe something as the equivalent of social work kinds of positions that they would do uh, for the army, but not necessarily in army fatigues and not necessarily having to compromise on the religious um, uh, role definition as much. 
Uh, men learning eventually, they, they, they hammered out, a, I'm giving you the bottom line, I'm skipping the struggle, and it took a long time to get to this, by the mid-50s, men who were qualified as learning full-time in yeshivas were exempted from the army as well, all of which would be then reevaluated with your Lapid, and right now is one of the issues very much at hand, and what one of the hopes of the Haredi parties is to reverse the uh, damage that was done in the previous, in the previous regime. The Mizrahi, Mizrahi who both embrace Torah and the state in different proportions depending on where they are. The Mizrahi we're talking about as a group, but in fact they're much more of a spectrum, going from very sincere, very religious, hardal if you must, if you want to use terminology, all the way to hardly recognizably religious. The tiny kippa speck on the head that you might make out if you use a microscope kind of variation where they don't recognizably practice much, but they may on some level identify as orthodox or traditional, uh, and everything in between. The, in the Mizrahi, they either served in the regular army, or what eventually would, would, would develop was a situation where they could go to what's called Hezder Yeshiva, which combines army service with, with serious Torah study. It meant that they went for longer. Whereas an average army conscription would last three years, so a Hesder boy would serve for five years. I think the breakdown, and this has changed and evolved over the years, but I think the breakdown approximately um, is three years study, two years full-time army service. And, and they're, 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 it depends, they vary. And it depends which yeshiva, but like any place, again, it's assuming you have, the, you have good, better, and best, and right, there, there, there's a range. That's Hezder. There were other variations, too. Um, later on, there was Mechina, which is slightly a weaker variation for weaker students. I, I don't think people, they, don't, they never use that term. I'm just using shorthand, easy descriptions, because <laughs> that's practically what it was. Um, the first Hezder yeshiva, I mean, Karim Biyavna, was founded, it was founded actually before the state by a student of Rav Zalman Meltzer and, and the Chazunich, meaning somebody of pure Haredi pedigree. His name, Big Talmud Chacham, Rav Chaim Goldvicht. His nephew is at YU. Uh, I think it's his nephew. Not his great nephew. Great, his nephew, Rav Meir Goldvicht, Big Talmud Chacham. Anyway, Rav Chaim Goldvicht is, um, was, was the founder of this yeshiva, and they, today, till today, it's a very serious, high-level place, and they, and they became a Hez yeshiva, which combines, again, these, these two variations. Okay, so that's a very inadequate description. All of this we're going to elaborate on as the state grows and develops. Um, the last issue that I'm going to talk about with religious issues in the state is not a very well known, not, not even that significant uh, uh, factor, but it's something worth mentioning, which is something called Mishpat Ivri. Familiar? Mishpat Ivri is a project. The idea of the project was you would, you're going to hear about it and think, oh, this is classic, quintessential. Mizrahi, modern orthodox kind of idea. The idea is to integrate halacha in secular society on a practical basis. And they called it Mishpat Ivri. The idea was to take every area of halacha that could somehow be integrated in a civil, legal situation and then apply it. And if, after all, this is the Jewish state, try to make it part of the Jewish state. Now, so far, so good. It would sound very good. I mean, we hold the Torah as a complete system of justice. There is no other system of justice. So much so that to defer to another system of justice is an isidiraisa of going to Erkaos, 
You know you're not allowed to take a case to um, not only an American court, but you can't go to an Israeli court either if there's a base team that's available to do so is effectively kfira. It's okay. kind of heresy. It's as if you're saying, we don't really in the Torah world have a justice system. We have to defer to their justice system. What are you talking about? We do have a justice system. There are exceptions to that. If the other guy's going to only go to the secular court, you don't have to lose money. You could go there then. And there are other reasons, other so grounds. So you have to follow the law of the land. You follow the law of the land. doesn't mean accepting the justice system. And because in Israel they recognize the base team, one of the things that happens if you do have a case that goes to base team, the first thing you do in base team is to sign a legal document that says whatever psak is rendered by the base team has tokef is valid in a secular in the secular system. So you, and and you agree not to if you're dissatisfied with the psak of the base team, you're not allowed to make mishpat the secular court and open up the case again. Clear here, but like in America, if you have a financial issue, like the way. If it's between two Jews, it's forbidden to go to the American justice system. How about if a Jew uh, hurts another Jew and they get arrested by the police? Uh -huh. If they have the power, it's forbidden for them to go through the secular courts. If they don't have the power, they do. They work backwards and damage control. They do the best they can. Mishpat Ivri, though, was one that accepted the secular society. As was, that's, of course, the whole system of the Mizrahi is to integrate themselves within the system and try to infuse it with Torah. Um, so areas like property rights, sales, renting, uh, tort law, you know what tort law means? Like damages. Not actually like damages, damages. Torts means damages. Um, not those uh, nice apricot pies that you can buy in stores, that's something different. The, um, so the, the, um, they, they, there, there is a lot to learn, but we have quite a, <laughs> we have, the Torah is a complete system. Um, but ultimately, Mishpat Ivri became an academic field. Academic in the worst sense of the term, you know, university kind of thing. Um, it basically considers halacha by using secular civil legal systems as the foundation. So it's very problematic. The Briskerov, for example, and many others, but he, he was very vocal about this and other things, he considered the whole thing of mockery of Torah. Uh, he says, Chukas ak Akum, the laws of the Goyim, of the non-Jews, serve to only muddy and sully the Torah of the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Um, Initially, it was encouraged by the secular to embrace religious elements. The idea, of course, is Kiruv. Let's get the secular people excited about Torah, about Jewish law. But ultimately, the state of Israel discarded most of Mishpat Ivri in a practical way when it came to practical civil war. A civil civil law, interesting uh, uh, slip of tongue there. Uh, and instead, the state mostly draws from the British model. The government is a social democracy, parliamentary democracy. That's a purely British model from the British Mandate era. And most of the legal system as well uh, borrows from the British system much more than it does from anything in Allah or that anything that's recognizably Jewish. Um, so now there are armistice agreements in 1949. It's time to roll up our sleeves and have a state. Complicated business. At the time of the armistice signings in, in the spring of 1949, there are still approximately 650,000 Jews living in Eretz Yisrael. Um, now listen to this. Get the numbers. Try to absorb the numbers. I don't mean to just saturate you with statistics, but it, it, it'll make it, it's important to understand this to realize what happened and the Nisim Niflaos that took place in those critical early years of the state, again, you start with not many people who remember right after the war, they're broke, they're broken, they'd lost 1% of their population, everybody knew somebody, if not multiple people who had died, uh, they're just picking up their wounds, they're scared, the wars, there are peace, there are negotiations for truces, but there's hardly peace. 
The war, the next war was already being discussed whenever it was going to break out. Um, and to top it all off, by 1952, not even four years later, 200,000 new immigrants would join them. Okay? Uh, that's a lot. That means you've gotten a quarter new, uh, you don't even have enough food for the people who are living there. Now you've got to integrate a bunch of new immigrants. And I think I did mention this the other day. Many of the new immigrants were not, were not um, aware how to live in a Western society. Many of them had came from other lands, Muslim lands, where they were not exposed to modern technology. So not only do you have to feed these people, but you had to acculturate them and get them used to a modern country. Uh, it was quite a challenge. Um, they didn't have places for people to live. Most of the new immigrants lived in what were called ma'abarot. You ever been to a ma'ab, ever hear about these? They were what we would call them shanty towns, squalid uh, tent camps that they set up. You know, as a, in desperation, what else are you going to do? You got to put them somewhere, and that's how people were living, and often dying. Um, by 1954, the population grew even more exponentially. You'd reach up to 1.5 million, which means that in six, not even six years, uh, the population um, uh, two and a half, grows two and a half times is effectively what happens. It's not just Jews from countries of, of, um, that were ruled by Muslims. We mentioned already the mid, throughout the Middle East, the Maghreb, the North African countries, but now you had large influx of, of uh, immigrants, Jewish immigrants from places like Romania, Hungary, uh, and elsewhere. Many of the new immigrants were, were desperately poor and hungry. Um, but I try to paint a more accurate picture. We, I try to give the messy version of history that's complicated. Um, with all the terrible, terribly hard issues, including the conflicts that inevitably broke out between people of different backgrounds, people don't get, yeah, I don't know if you know this, in a, in anybody here ever play in a sandbox when they were five years old? Did you ever notice that the little kids don't always get along very nicely? People are kind of like that too. Right, so now you take a bunch of people with a lot of different cu cultures, and you've got mamish kibbutz galios, an ingathering of exiles. It doesn't always go so smoothly. You just have to put it mildly. However, so as not to paint a completely bleak picture, there was also a feeling of euphoria in the air. I mean, there was a an independent Jewish state. There was an independent Jewish state. Wait, I just say there was an independent Jewish state. You had to pinch yourself. It was extraordinary. Think about it, 1900 years, and especially we who've gone through all of history and having relived it, experienced it vicariously, it's amazing, there's a new state, and that also was there. And you know, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're stuck in towns infested with malaria, all kinds of problems of starvation, but somehow you can get over that with the recognition that you're living in these, in, in these, in these um, providential times. These times that seem to, you see Yad Hashem all around you, and especially if you have a religious sensibility, there was, a, there was an undercurrent of optimism too, with all the bleak uh, realities that, that confronted them. Uh, they were eager to build, they were grateful to be alive. Um, there was an, a naive expectation that now that there was an actual state, all the Jews of the world would come flocking to Israel, including the wealthy Jews from the Western countries like America. They too, I mean, after all, the Zionists had the hard job of draining the swamps and fighting the wars, but now that there was a state, now it's free, coast is clear, everybody can come. Come on down, everybody. They're still waiting. Not can you imagine that those people up in, I don't know, you know, on, on Rodeo Drive and up in, um, 
you know, you know Scarsdale, they didn't, they said, oh, there's an Israelis right there. We'll just sell the mansion and move to the Ma'abarot, to the squalid shanty towns, to live Like, like now, all the rich Jews in America support Israel. No, what a gross exaggeration. All the rich Jews in America support. There are some rich Jews in America supporting Israel, it's true. Like, a lot of the really rich ones. Not a lot, relative to the numbers, not a lot. Most of the rich Jews are so extremely assimilated, they have nothing to do with uh, Judaism at all, let alone Israel. Most yeah, of the rich well, Jews, a lot of people use Judaism those rich only. Jews who are identifiably Jewish yeah. and have a feeling, okay, but then you're talking about a minority population already. Fine, but a lot of people also use Israel as like one thing that will connect them to, like, all these issues that true, are really assimilated. No like, question, no question. But it's not, uh, uh, unlike the expectation, I mean, you read some of the writings, Ben-Gurion, Voldemir, you really, they, they really had the expectation that everybody was going to come now. Stakes here, okay, everybody, come, okay. Still waiting. Didn't quite work out that way. Uh, okay, so we all have naivete. We all have our, our, our blind spots. Um, to, I'm going to stay on demographics. You have a sense of, if you're looking for hand, that, the hand of Hashem and all of this, and we see this, Listen, at one point, Mashiach's going to come, and we're going to take a global look at all the developments of the time, and we're going to just be in amazement. Because all this stuff that's staring us in our face, that we see these developments in our times, but we tend to be so um, used to it, we're so overly familiar with the world that we tend not to recognize the miracles. Just look at the demographics and realize there's a stunning reality that's unfolding in our days of Kibbutz Galios, of this ingathering of exiles. So again, you go from 1948, 650,000. By 1954, you're up to 1.5 million. 1973, the Jewish population is at 1.8 million, meaning between 54 and 73, it doesn't grow an awful lot. More or less from 54 to, to, to 73, there isn't, there isn't a massive change. Uh, you would expect even just natural birth rate and so on, there'd be a, uh, maybe a large population, not to mention the immigration, but it doesn't seem to grow. Uh, that's going to change. We're going to see with lots of mass influence, not the least of which from the former Soviet Union. By 1999, it, it, it shoots up to 4.7 million. Um, and in, as, as, of, as of the last census, and we're now in 2015, so we're, we're hovering somewhere between 600, 600, 6, 6 and 6.2 million Jews in Eretz Israel. The uh, citizens of Eretz Israel are up to 8 million, but there are a lot of Arabs and other, other minorities as well. Um, meaning the Jewish population of Israel today and has been consistently for a while at least about 75% Jewish uh, which is another interesting factor the type of what people call the demographic time bomb meaning at current rates the Jews are not having so many babies but the Arabs are so if you do intend to keep a democracy here how is that going to pan out in 50 years um, it's true it's true I have a whole discussion about that too if that's true how come the representation in Knesset has not grown so much for the Haredi parties I think some of them go off the derech there are a lot of reasons for it we'll have to, we'll have to get to that we're a little ahead of ourselves um, let's back up then and consider this in light of history and the demographics in history to the best that we know we don't know absolute numbers we didn't have census until the modern era exactly well we had the Torah census but um, we didn't have most, we didn't have throughout most phases of history census. But based on reasonable estimates and sources that we have, about how many Jews left Egypt? 600. No, wait, that was just 
That was just the men, a man of army serving age. About people estimate if there's, if there's six hundred thousand men, if you add the women and children, the old people, so you get up to you get about three million. About three million is is the is the estimate. Um, by the time you get uh, to the Churban Bais Rishon, we're down to about three hundred thousand tiny people, Jewish people, after the decimation that follows the Churban. Um, by late by Shani, we shoot up. Do you remember this is one of the great times of Gerus, of, of, of a conversion and other factors, and, and, and immense, uh, in Second Temple period in general, there was an immense um, demographic boost. A lot of people had babies. Um, so now by the late Second Temple period, the estimate is about 7 million Jews. But the Khurban, and then later on Bar Kokhba revolt, decimated the Jewish people all over again. And now the estimates say we're down from 7 million to 2 million. So it's quite a roller coaster of history. We've, we've waxed and waned. Um, by the Spanish expulsion, um, the, estimate, the estimate is that there are about a million Jews in the world. By the 19th century, remember the huge demographic explosion in, in the 19th century, we saw at the beginning of the century about 4 million Jews, and by the end, 16 million. Uh, at the beginning of the Shoah, there are about 17 million Jews in the world. Uh, afterwards, about 11 million. And today, today we're holding about, the estimate is today we're about 13.5 million Jews in the world, which means we have basically not moved since the Shoah. And that's shocking because in normal demographic terms, the Jewish population should be over twice the number that it was after the Shoah. But what, what, did, it, what did it to us? More Jews were lost to assimilation, evidently based on the raw numbers, then to all the, all the gas chambers in the world, more Jews assimilated uh, than, than, um, than any, any other phenomenon. Um, persecution wouldn't do what assimilation does. Um, if we're talking about Eretz Yisrael, right after the foundation of the state, um, there is, for our purposes, one of the other huge factors um, in terms of the growth of Am Yisrael, and that is the Torah center of the world was wiped out in a blink of the eye because the years of the Shoah were nothing in the scheme of history. And you went from being the dominant post-Babylonian center of Torah to suddenly not only not being dominant, but almost didn't exist. The Jews were just picking up the pieces in Europe. And so de facto, Eretz Yisrael becomes not the only, but certainly one of the major and, and, and increasingly the Torah center in the world. Um, I am now, my, the first project is to talk about Torah and Eretz Yisrael, and I talk about it through some of the personalities that came over to start building Torah in the, in the early years of the state. Um, and then I'm going to go across the Atlantic Ocean and talk about the situation of Torah in America, which in the beginning of the 20th century, the situation was dire and would, it would see a turnaround. And we'll talk about some of the institutions there. But first, let's, let's consider Eretz Yisrael. Um, the Gedolim realized in Eretz Yisrael that it's up to them to save Tyra. That if we're going to survive, and if you save Tyra, you save Klal Yisrael, you, you, you've worked, you've, you've taken the world to the next stage to get to the Mashiach, uh, with all the crisis, con crisis confronting the new generations, there had to be a new model. We couldn't just go on status quo, there had to be a radical new break. Among other problems, obviously and recognizably, modernity dealt a devastating blow to the Tyra of the world. And how are you going to, now you have a new state that's essentially secular, how are you going to raise children under, under these circumstances? 
And you know, it's scary on a certain level. Today already we've lived a couple generations within the state to recognize you could do it. You could potentially you know, have a Torah family and transmit and lead and they could then get married and have their own Torah families, but it was anybody's guess, guess what it was gonna be. And we've are, if you have been paying attention to this class, we've already seen that some of the Zionists did very, very devious things. You remember the whole situation with the story in the 1920s with Chaim Weitzman's uh, fundraising and coming back and the, the parents sent their kid to Cheder only to have the kids come back assimilated and, 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 and secularized by, by the new language, by the new culture. And, the, and now that becomes, that's, that's an increasing reality. People are recognizing this. How are you going to uh, continue the transmission of our holy system? Uh, that becomes the focus of many, many, uh, many, many minds. And um, I'm going to mention just a few to talk about, talk about their impact. Especially, I mean, now you have the secular world. You have the increasingly um, materialistic world, mechanized, alienating modern world. Modern man walks around in a stupor being overwhelmed by everything uh, and the smallness of his being and the irrelevance of religion. So one of the great figures, uh, role models, we've already met, we've met most of these, most of these individuals. His full name is Rav Yitzchak Zev. He's called Ravelvola Soloveitchik. He's also referred to as the Griza Levi. He's also called the Brisker Rav. Brisker Rav, you remember, is the son of Rav Chaim Brisker. He, um, the, I, I'm not going to give a complete assessment of his life. I'm going to talk about a few of the important facts of his life. Um, he was born in 1886, so he was not a young man um, when the Nazis rose to power. And he was in Poland. And he was the, he was the Rosh Yeshiva Brisk, of the great Yeshiva in Brisk. And in 1941, uh, saving the details and how they got to the situation, he and one of his sons were together fleeing from the Nazis for their lives. And effectively, they trekked hundreds of miles across Poland. And they survived miraculously. And the story, it's a very, anybody know the story? It's extremely well known. Um, he had a Masoira from his altar Zaydi Zaydi. His altar Zaydi Zaydi, remember the great Shiva Volozhin? Who's the founder of the Shiva of Volozhin? Rav Chaim of Volozhin. The Talmud Mufak of the Vilnagon. So he had none other than Rav Chaim of Volozhin. The Messiah, the tradition as follows. Dan, you're with me on this? Yeah, okay. He had that there's a certain Pasuk you can recite. I, I gave a shir on magic earlier in the year and I mentioned this. He had an understanding there's a certain Pasuk, a fundamental Pasuk in the Torah, that if you focus on this Pasuk, you can overturn and, and, and survive, with, withstand the assault of any kind of damaging forces in the world. Anybody you know the Pasuk? Wouldn't it be a good thing for you to know it? Atah uh, Hashem Hu Elohim. It's the end of the pasuk. It's on a lot of bumper stickers around Israel. Ein od milvado. You've shown to know that you are Hashem. There's none other than you. It's part of our kavana that we have when we're being makabel omochut shemaim when we're saying kriyishma. There's nothing like Hashem. That's the pshat on echad Hashem echad. It's not that He's one. It's that He's unique. He's, there's none other than a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And the, the Brisker Rav had from his ancestor of Chaim of Elohim, a Messiah that said, if you focus on the pure meaning of that Pasuk, which is incredibly deep, deep you can actually vanquish uh, the demons of the world. And they did. And they went across Poland saying the Pasuk. And I don't know exactly what was going on in their minds, because you're talking about Gedolim here. His son was a huge Tamil Chacham too. And they focused on it, and every now and then his son's concentration would wane, and Ravelvola would tell him, no, no, you know, he would remind him and get him back focused on it. 
And one particular part of the story in my mind stands out. They were on a, they got in a railroad, railroad car. And um, by the way, the Briskarov, he looked kind of Jewish. He never changed, he had a beard, he had a whole, he, he, you know, he was a Rav, he was a Rebbe, unmistakably. And they were on this railroad car fleeing the Nazis across Poland where the Nazis had already invaded. And suddenly, in the middle of the journey, there are no Nazis on, uh, in the car, and suddenly the train stops, and a whole battalion of Nazis get on. And they're sitting there, and tell, tell me if this strikes you, and you can think about any other image. My, my, this one just blasted in my mind as, as, as a story from history. Tell me, you're going to get it. Somebody's, somebody here has got to get this. What image, what, what's the parallel story in history? They're sitting there, surrounded by Nazis. You know, with his beard and pale, the whole thing, the beard and pale and everything. And somehow the Nazis do not pay attention to the Briska Robin Hassan the entire ride and they get off. What am I thinking of? Who's standing there, Mamish, at threat to his life among hostile forces who totally ignore him? Go ahead. Daniel in the lion's den. Well, that's what I thought, but like, they're not hostile, they're just lions. They were starving. They, they threw away the, they threw the judges, uh, the guy who actually framed Daniel, and they ate him like a, in a second before he Remember the end of the story they, when they say, oh, the lions weren't really hungry, so, so um, Doyabi says, okay, well, let's test them, and he throws them in the, in the lion's den, and the people don't even hit the ground, the lions are that ravenous. <coughs> So it's, it's an apt comparison, it seems. Um, another part of the story is, later on, when the wagon was going, he asked, I don't know how, how he had this power to do this, but he asked the, the, the conductor to stop the train um, so he could daven while standing. He didn't want to daven. You could daven sitting down, but the Mr. Rob didn't want to do that. He wanted to daven like Daniel, you know, standing up. Um, and this meant that the, all of the wagons of all the other people had to stop. And there were a lot of Jews on board. And everybody complained and they were scared because they're fleeing. And they're trying to get across Poland and escape. And the Briskarov says, no, I want to dive him while standing. He wasn't going to dive him. He could dive him, but he had to dive him while standing in a proper way. That was his demand. And people grumbled and complained and how dare he and so on. But they got to Vilna. And when they reached Vilna, they discovered that just a few minutes earlier, the Nazis had just left, having evacuated all the city Jews from Vilna. And had the train gotten there at its scheduled time, they would have been just in time to meet the Nazis too. And having gotten there later, they were spared. And they were able to get on. And it's one of those stories, but it's an eerie story. Ain od mil You got it? Everybody's reciting it? Don't stop, okay? Don't lose concentration. ain od mil when he got there, he cited the Medrash in Dvarim Rava. He says, Ein Adam Shomeli. Excuse me. Ein Adam Shomeli Umafsi. No person listens to God, no listens to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and loses. It's always good when you do mitzvahs. It'll always redound to your benefit, even if you don't see the immediate results. That was what he quoted. Um, he makes it to Yerushalayim Yerukodesh. And he comes and he establishes one of the great all-time yeshivas, um, Yeshivas Brish, Brisk. In Yerushalayim, it's just down the street. We'll talk about brisk later on. He he continues the sheet to the brisker, the brisker, you can sit comfortable. The brisker derech uh, limud, which we remember from his father, emphasizes simple shot learning. Don't read my notes. That's for tomorrow. I'm gonna be surprised tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, it's tomorrow stuff. Um, what's that? Yeah, fine. Go ahead. Uh, this is more interesting, though. I'll tell you. The, oh, that's good. You, no, 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 don't, don't pay attention. That's fine. Go ahead. Um, do you insist? I do. 
the uh, okay. So in brisk, they learn they learn with with strong understanding with the sticking to the text. A big emphasis on which Rishon. Come on, brisk Rambam, right? Mishnah Torah. Um, he was uncompromising in his views. We'll talk. We'll, I have a few stories to tell about him. Not now. We'll, he'll come up again in history. Um, he was a- against the secular state. And he advocated uh, a complete withdrawal, no association with the secular states. Uh, he was in favor of refusing, refusing funds, like the Satmar Rebbe. Um, he disagreed with Roshach. Roshach was what we call, let's say, the more pragmatic Torah view of accepting the funds and working within the system to try to benefit Torah. Um, the Briskarov and his yeshiva till today are known for Chumras. They're very, very careful in their practice of halacha, famously. Uh, it means, among other things, for example, he has, all, he has a whole sheet on the subject. He keeps Yom Tov Sheni, even in Yerushalayim, the second day of Yantif, uh, on the possibility that the shlichim, the messengers reporting the new moon, didn't pass through the area where he lived outside the city walls of Yerushalayim. All system based on this. All very grounded in Shas and Poskim. Um, they generally don't rely on kashus of most kashus. They make it themselves. Uh, you have to be careful if you're invited to a brisker house. Uh, don't bring them any gifts, you know. Or if you do, you know, bring them. I don't know what. I don't know what you can get them. What? No. Where? Yeah. No. Shmita. Oy vey. You know. I don't know what you could bring them. Oy vey. So many issues with wine. So many issues with wine. Wow. Money. No. I don't know. I don't know exactly. A book. A book about the briskerov. There you go. Make sure it's by a reputable author. The um, yeah, they also interesting. Brisk is famous among other hey, things. Where you live? Like, do you, do you live right around here. Ah, like, uh, you listen. Big Tommy I know a young young man lives in Telstone. Uh, lives c- comes in every day and learns in the in the colo. So I don't know. And they're not just in Yerushalayim. The um, they study among other things. They're very famous for studying Seder Kachim. Why do they learn Seder Kachim? I always point this out. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's to prepare, but also, you know, if you're learning about the base of Mikdash, even when we don't have it, you get all the schar. You realize how many mitzvahs of the 600, of the 613 mitzvahs, how many of them pertain to the avod in the base of Mikdash. And when you learn about it, you get all the reward as if you're keeping it. So they're doing that. And also, they're going to be the authorities in halacha. They're going to know the sugi is inside and out uh, for what we need to know when the time comes, which could be any day now. Uh, so that's one approach to modernity. Focus uncompromising, uh, we're going we're gonna to prepare and, and do our part, even if we're the minority of the Jews, but uh, we understand that Kalal Yisrael has often stood as the minority against the majority, and you've got to do the right thing no matter what. Um, there's a figure from this period uh, that's well known. He's, a, he's, he's somebody who's the subject of great stories. There's a book written about, there are a few books written about him. His name is Ari Levine. Uh, often referred to as the prisoner rabbi. He was a widely beloved tzaddik. Uh, the book about him is Ish Tzaddikaya, a tzaddik in our time, um, who, who has just beautiful, legendary acts of chesed. Uh, he carried illegal notes between prisoners and their families at, at threat of being incarcerated himself. Uh, he would visit, it wasn't just the prisoners. He, there would be people who were contagiously sick that everybody uh, treated as lepers, and he visited them. He didn't care. Um, 
a man was sentenced to death, and the British commissioner would not hear of any uh, any petition, and so um, and he wouldn't he wouldn't meet with anybody. So Ravari Levine, he was this short uh, tzaddik of a, of, a, of a figure. He threw himself before the high commissioner's car, and the man and he couldn't move the car because Ravari Levine was lying down, and it worked. He commuted the sentence, and the man survived. A uh, lot, lot to be said. Among, we're going to meet him too. Among other things, um, his daughter married Ravel Yoshev. <coughs> Rav Yosef Shlomo Kahneman, Rav Yosef Shlomo Kahneman, um, I think as much as the Chazonish, and we did a whole unit on the Chazonish describing his impact and his shaping the modern Torah world, Rav Kahneman is, is, uh, certainly deserves to be credited with shaping the Torah world. He was the Rosh Hashiva of the Holy Yeshiva of Panovich. We met him briefly when I talked about his attitude towards the state. He was the one who said that he, didn't, he wasn't rich enough to afford all those, all those clothes that he'd have to tear if he sat in the Knesset. Um, so when he established Panovich in Lithuania, um, he was already recognized as a gadol. He had learned in Tells in the Vardic. His rebbe's include were, were the Chafetz Chaim of Naftali Trup and other gadolim. Um, he was legendary. He was a doer. He was some, that's why they wanted him to Knesset. He was somebody who just you gave him a job and you knew that would, he would pull it over. So he didn't stop. He was a Rosh Hashiva. He he worked to, to spread Torah. That was really what he was famous for. But he also created a school and an orphanage. He always took care of the the, the needy. Um, he was back in Lithuania. He was indeed elected to parliament. He served in parliament in Lithuania before the war. Um, the Shoah came and all of his institutions were destroyed. Listen to this. Rav Kahaneman's everything. The yeshiva was destroyed. The orphanage was destroyed. Most of his students were murdered. His wife and most of his children were murdered. One son, Avram, survived and would eventually lead the yeshiva in Panovich back in Eretz Yisrael. But can you imagine? Most people in life would have simply crumbled under the circumstances. You know, we're supposed to be resilient. We're supposed to bounce back from tragedy. Um, it's much easier to say uh, than to do. So he lost everything. He happened to have been in Eretz Yisrael raising money for the yeshiva back in Lithuania in 1940. And the war broke out and he couldn't get back. And so he couldn't get back, and he remained. And then news came over, slowly trickled in, about the fate of his wife, his children, his institutions. Everything was wiped out. And he built. He, um, in 1940 and 1941, there was a whole, pro there was a whole process. I, I, when we did the show, I mentioned this briefly, but it's quite a story. I don't know if you, this is not a well-known uh, feature of the war. Um, do you remember that the Nazis were situated in North Africa and they actually marched over, Rommel marched over and almost conquered Eretz Yisrael and then had to turn back because it was, it, it, the, the, the situation had gotten desperate. But in 1941, German planes bombed Tel Aviv. I don't know if you know that. 1941? Yeah, they, the Italian and German planes bombed Tel Aviv. And the, you didn't know what was going on. You know, we, we, it's so easy for us to sit in perfect hindsight and say, oh, well, what's the big deal? Tel Aviv survives because there's going to be a Jewish state a few years later. Well, they didn't know that then. They felt that this was the beginning of the end. And they, the, they knew that they were in concentration camps. They hadn't quite a hit upon the Nazis had not yet quite a hit upon the final solutions yet, the Zyklon B. That would be 1942. But they were close. So people were understandably panicked. And there was hysteria. So much so that the Jewish agency began burning its sensitive documents lest they get fall into the hands of the Nazis. I mean, that's the situation. 
Um, and Rabbanim were declaring fast days, and there was a general pandemonium. People were panicked in the streets. And in the midst of the panic, Rav Hanuman had this ceremony that he'd been planning all along. He laid the cornerstone of his new yeshiva. Right there in the middle of the tiny uh, Torah village that was founded, that was really founded in the 1920s, but really came to the fore under the Chazonish in the early 1930s. We talked about that. And his brother-in-law, the Stipler Gaon, and in, in, in Holy Bnei Brak on, a, on an empty, deserted hill, he put the cornerstone of a new yeshiva there, and people watching him mocked him. They said, we're ducking the bombs of the Germans and the Italians right now, and you're building yeshiva? And he said, quite so. That's what a Jew does, right? He said, Hashem's not going to forsake his own land. And what we do is we build Torah. And we let a Kaddish Baruch take care of the details. And he built the yeshiva. In fact, he built, he built the glorious yeshiva, one of the great yeshivas in the world till today, the Ponovich yeshiva, um, from scratch. He had to raise the money. Um, he was, you know, people talk about Rav Kahneman as having, if you use a secular term, Goyesha uh, term, the Midas touch, that he was expert in fundraising. Um, he was very effective. And there are great story, legendary stories about his fundraising. Ask Rav Brickman. He'll tell you stories about him. Anybody, anybody who runs yeshiva and has to fundraise always looks to Rav Kahneman as a model. Um, in fact, he had actually run himself down. He became physically exhausted by the end of his life. It was a grueling process, traveling, many stories of, of him wearing himself out and uh, to the point of physical illness uh, to raise the money, which he did raise. And he built, he put over, he didn't just build, well, you're going to hear what his accomplishments were, they're immense. He didn't just build Panovich, he built all over Eretz Yisrael. Um, later in his life, he went to a young congregational rabbi in the Florida area. The young rabbi's name was Reveral Wine. Uh, he had not yet become the famous Reveral Wine of history tapes and such. Um, and, uh, but he, he, Rav Wine tells the story of him driving. He was Zolche. He merited driving Rav Kahaneman around Florida to Gvirin. You know, it's, has any, have you ever fundraised? Difficult work. I mean, it's great work, it's holy work, but it's not always easy having the door slammed in your face. You realize with most fundraising, it's 99 no's to every yes, and then you're effective. Most of the time, it's just no's, and you get dis discouraged. So they were sitting, they'd set up a meeting. The story goes, they were setting up a meeting in one particular wealthy man's house, who's not a religious man, but somebody who may have been sympathetic to, to Torah causes. And the man was favorably disposed. He met this tzaddik, Rav Yosef Shlomo Kahaneman. He's often referred to as the Ponovich Rebbe. And he met, he met, he met Rav Kahaneman. And indeed, he wrote a check that was generous. When wine looked over the shoulder and saw how much was in the check, and it was a nice sum. And um, the Ponovich Rebbe made a face. And wine looked at him, and he said he made a face. He wanted to crawl under the chair. He didn't know where to go. He thought, oh no, what's going to happen? So the Gvir saw the face that Rav Kahneman made at this check, and he said, is there a problem? And the Panavirich Rebbe said, yes. And the Gvir said, what's the problem? And he said, you could do better. And it was at this point Rebbe Wine wanted to dart out of the door. Uh, but the Gvir said, excuse me, I could do better? How could I do better? And the Panavirich Rebbe looked at him in the eye and said, another zero. And the Gvir grabbed the check and took it back and added the other zero. He says, Rabbi Wine says, if I wasn't there, I wouldn't believe the story. If you're the Bonavitcher Rebbe, you can, you can do that. I don't necessarily think you should try this at home, kids, but uh, go, go, go see if it works. Um, 
he was legendary for other activities. There's one famous parsha. Have you heard of the children of Tehran? Yalde Tehran? Yeah, they like walked. Yeah, they weren't. I, they weren't Persian Jews. They're not talking about Iranian Jews, even though Tehran is in Iran. They right. They were orphaned kids who'd escaped the Nazis by walking from Europe to Iran in 1943, and they all came from religious homes. And eventually they came to Eretz Israel. This is before the, the state. And um, there was an immense struggle because the, 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 these were kids without protection, without any par parents. The parents had been, had, been, um, had been murdered. And they were all religious kids. And the yeshuv got a hold of them and started to set them up with good, proper, secular kibbutzim. And Rav Kahaneman led the crusade to try to save these kids. And... Um, I should say they were mostly from Torah backgrounds, not all. Uh, and in the end, after a long, difficult, bitter struggle, the Zionists ultimately won. Today, most of the children of Tehran are not from. There might be one who later on indirectly became from, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as many shlichim. But um, sad story, but he was valiant in his efforts to try to help them. Uh, that's part, I mean, the story of the state, to a large degree, is a, story, is a struggle for Tehran, the soul of Tehran, the children of Tehran, to try to... and and, and um, Listen, from the point of view of the Zionists, you know, maybe from our perspective it looks cynical. I, I think some of them, at least, were idealistic in their motivation. They felt that they were helping the Jews, that they were backwards if they were religious and they'd give them a good, popular, secular education and then, you know, show them the light, show them to be proper, good uh, kibbutzniks in the future state. So it's not necessarily pure evil, uh, that, as we encountered in other cases of history where the people are just trying to do bad. They, they, were, they had their own brand of idealism. Uh, but clearly, it was it was antithetical to Torah. The um, <clears throat> there was a whole recent the children of Tehran came up recently in the news. They were suing the government for something. But the people, all the, 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 the there are a few old timers now who are still survivors of this group. Uh, I, I, in hearing them, none of those at least were were sounded religious. The families weren't religious. Um, he launched a new program called the Yarche Kala, named for the old Talmudic gatherings, the conventions. No, he didn't name it for the NCSY event. Actually, that's the other way around. The, uh, the Yarche Kala, based on what they did in, back in Bavel, um, which meant a two-week-long central gathering in Ponovich in Bnei Brak, uh, and elsewhere in the, in, in the country, of all the great yeshiva students. So there'd be a feeling with all the disparate people learning all around the country that you were all part of the same project. So he started the Yarche Kala, um, he founded Panovich. He founded a great yeshiva in Ashdod called Grodna. Uh, his ambition was to build 18 yeshivas. Uh, he didn't quite get that far, but he, he, his impact was immense. Um, he's often credited with creating what's called the Chevras Halomdim in Eretz Yisrael. It's hard to say that it's only one person involved. Certainly the Chazonish had a major stake, the Stiflagon. But when we talk about the Haredi world, as we're going to talk about, and we talk about the institutions, the fact that the men, for example, are learning in Kolel full-time for a long period, sometimes indefinitely, you, and you know that that's a modern Chiddush. That's not something that we were doing most of, throughout most of history. Most men, in fact, the Shulchan Aruch Paskins that were supposed to have jobs. Well, based on the Rambam, that men, men are the breadwinners of the family. But this new... Phase, this Chevra Salom in the society of learners, the full-time learners, which the, the Panovich Arab is a major architect of that idea, he said, okay, and in an emergency, I'm going to paraphrase, in an emergency, sometimes you'd have to pop a couple of red lights to get the uh, patient to the hospital and save his life. 
Right now, Am Yisrael, the Torah, the, the Torah community is fighting for its existence, and sometimes you're going to have to break the rules to keep the rules. Uh, sometimes you have you have to do that, and that's that's very much their idea, um, right? Even though it means often a life of material hardship, even though the wives often become the breadwinners, even though it in, involves army exemptions and all the ramifications, and therefore also fewer fewer prospects when eventually, if they do leave, often they leave the confines of yeshiva and kolal to go make a pranasa, and by that stage in life, if they're in their 30s and so on, they don't really have many prospects. They don't have training, they don't have secular education, so they're, 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 they're and they know this going in, that, they're, that they're, um, their prospects are quite limited, and they do it anyway. It's called Mesiris Nefesh for Torah. Um, so, so we're going to talk about the development of this, and certainly we see the Ponovich Rebbe as being a major factor in this. Um, he personally was a, cut a very, very striking figure. He was extreme European, dignified, covetic individual, beloved figure. Uh, his practice personally was to come every Arab Shabbos to Yeshiva to learn Torah. That's what one does. You get there early to learn as best you can. Anytime you're davening, uh, take out the Torah and learn. Put yourself in the right mindset. Um, when he got to Yeshiva, one particular Arab Shabbos, there was an absent-minded janitor who was doing the floors. I tell the story right there where it happened. Where you go, there's like, the yeshiva is very great. We've been to the yeshiva in, in Bnei Brak. Very grand. Sits on the hill there. Beautiful view. Uh, right? You go up the stairs there, and as he was walking up the stairs, the janitor upstairs was doing the floors and spilled dirty water everywhere, assuming there was nobody below. And it got Rav Kahneman all over his nice Shabbos clothes. Strike that. Um, his only set of nice clothes. Um, and here's the story. It's an interesting story of a gadol. He went home to clean himself up. And he never, not only did he not say anything to the person upstairs, he didn't so much as look up to see who had done it. That was all from Kaddish Baruch He decided that I needed to go. He went home, cleaned himself up as best he could, and came back, never found out who, who did it to him. So how do we know this story? Um, somebody else had, had observed it. I mean, he wasn't alone there. Somebody else saw the whole thing, and they, they just saw that he never looked up. You know, most of them would say, how dare you? You don't realize, and look where you're cleaning and whatever else we would say in our self-righteous indignation. Um, the last couple I'm going to mention briefly, each of these could be the subject of many, many shirim, is Rabbi Eliyahu Eliezer Dessler, known to us by his famous modern book of Musr. It's really a collection of his great shirim that were gathered by one student, Rabbi Arya Carmel. Um, it's the Mikhtab Eliyahu. You've heard of Mikhtab Eliyahu? Great, famous, famous, important book. He had gotten smicha from his uncle, Rav Chaim Ozhigrzenski. We met his Gadolador, gave smicha to the Chavetz Chaim. Uh, he had led, he left Eastern Europe, went to England, and founded the Gateshead Kolel. And when you think of the great uh, Torah community Gateshead, you should associate it with Rudessler. In the late 1940s, as, a, as an older man already, not that much older, actually, he didn't have a long life. His dates are 1892 to 1953. But in the 1940s, he makes Aliyah, and he becomes the Mashkiach, a Panovich Yeshiva. Aliyah uh, was a classic till today. It's Musr, it's a Shkafa. Uh, I'll give you just a couple highlights and we'll conclude. Um, we'll, and, and, and on um, Wednesday, we'll start talking about the uh, yeshivas in the United States. Um, we have class Wednesday? Right, tomorrow's Teal, oh, and then Wednesday, 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 Wednesday we have class. Thursday, Thursday we don't have class. So Wednesday, Wednesday, we'll talk about yeshivas. So briefly, some of the, some of the famous bits from the Mikhtar Medao, he defines love. Have you heard this before? It's very powerful. He defines love. He says, Mikhtar Medao's famous definition of love. Yeah, thank you. That, yeah, I, I'm not surprised. Usually somebody's heard it before. Giving. You love the one you give to. That's why, among other reasons, um, 
parents love their children more than the children usually can ever love the parents. So the children, you know, picture the stereotypical mother gives you the bear hug, pinches your cheek, and the kid's reaction is, oh, mom, kind of a thing. Right? Because kids a little annoyed by the parents because they are the recipient. And you don't love the one who gives to you so much, but you love the one that you give to because you invest your neshama in them. And therefore, you wind up loving them more, and therefore, he uses it such a fantastic yesod. I mentioned it when I gave the marriage to Laura. Um, if you really want to work on your marriage, you be the giver. Don't take anything. You just be the, you, you be the, the one who's, 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 who's uh, providing and giving, and you will love everybody. And you'll probably be successful in anything you do in life. Um, he explains famously the person's battle with his Sahara is all based about an expression, famous expression, the Nekuda Sebechira, the point of free choice, which varies person to person at a different stage, you know this too, and at different stages in a person's life. And that means we're always drawing battle lines. Most of us, for example, you're walking by a jewelry store, most of us don't have a struggle with the eight hours like, oh, I really want that golden brooch. And we take a brick on the ground and smash the window and take the brooch. Most of us have passed that test, I hope. Uh, right? In terms of that, we're not going to go about doing that. Right? So that's not our battle right now. We have different battles. We're lustful, we're angry, we're jealous, we have all kinds of other things going on. So whatever it is, what's happening in our life is that we're simply constantly, like in a war, redefining the battlefront. Where's my battle right now? And if you know this, it's such a great strategy in fighting the Yatzer. Realize, okay, this is not my issue right now. That was three years ago. Right now my battlefront, the the point of battle, is in a different place. Um, he was outspoken and eloquent in talking about modern man's preoccupation with materialism, with technology. Uh, this is before the internet and, and smartphones. Um, he says all of these things have a tendency, he said this prophetically, to distance a person from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Uh, I, I say this to people who are using their smartphones. How uh, <laughs> embarrassing. The, um, he clarified that Rav's, Rav's statement in, in, the, in the Gemara and Erechim, mitoch shalolishma balishma, if a person Famous thing, if you don't start doing something with Lishma, eventually you come around to doing something Lishma. You've heard that before, we talked about it. So the Mikhtar Meleau famously qualifies it. He says, it's not automatic. You'll only get to Lishma on condition that you want to and that you work on it. You, it's not going to be an automatic thing. You have to be in the ballpark. There are people who will never become Lishma because it's not even in their, on their agenda. Uh, it's an in inadequate summary of the Mikhtar Meleau. You should go learn it. Uh, there's us on Wednesday. Wednesday, we'll talk about yeshivas in America.